Paul says, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, now we all know what Linda thinks is the worst word she'd ever hear from the pulpit, but what about you? What's the worst word you can imagine hearing from the pulpit? In a world where you can get away with saying and doing just about anything, is church still a sacred place untainted by the ways of the world? There are plenty of strange and difficult and downright awful stories from Scripture that we can read from the lectern, but don't you think the pulpit should be nice and clean? During the season of Lent, we confront our finitude, our sinfulness, and our total dependence on God. It is a really tough time for us comfortable Christians because these are exactly the kind of things we don't like to talk about. We'd rather avoid them. Gone are the days when we could expect to hear about our sins and be challenged out of them. Gone are the days when we could affirm our finite lives without needing something like Ash Wednesday once a year. Today, God has been reduced to a bumper-stickered and hallmarked version of love, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Today, church is not the place for judgment and for talk about sins. Regardless of how important they are in Scripture, we would all be happier if we could avoid them. And I think the same holds true for foul language. This is definitely not the place for someone like me to stand in front of people like you and use words that are forbidden from the radio and are relegated to rated R movies. As I heard someone in this church recently say, Preacher, there are just some things you don't talk about in church. There is a seemingly endless list of things to not talk about in church, like politics, abortion, divorce, war, sex, taxes, just to name a few. But foul language, language that results in soap-in-the-mouth discipline, is a particularly poignant thing that we should avoid in church. This morning I asked Eric Fitzgerald, one of our ushers, what's the worst word he can imagine hearing in church? And he said, well, I'm not going to say it out loud while I'm here. And I have a friend in ministry, another preacher, who has completely ignored this established rule. He loves to use foul language from the pulpit. Whether it's Christmas Eve and the church is filled with young families who only show up for one service a year, or it's Ash Wednesday when only the diehard Christians come out, he is known in the community for his colorful language. If you ask him, he'll tell you that he uses words like those to enhance the sermon in such a way that it becomes more memorable and it hits closer to home for people. And a lot of people at his church just can't stand it. Why does he feel like he has to resort to such awful language? The church deserves better than this. Does he talk to his mother that way? And I think they have a point. When the language used becomes more memorable or more important than the message being proclaimed, something has fallen apart. For instance, his Ash Wednesday sermon was titled, God Doesn't Give Up. I read it, 
I listened to it online. Frankly, it was phenomenal. It was so good. The theology and the proclamation were faithful to the one who is faithful in us. But a few people from his church called me afterward, and they couldn't even begin to express what his sermon was about. All they could remember was the title. They didn't hear anything else. But there is a value to using some bad words in church. During the season of Lent, this time after Epiphany but before Easter, there is a specific word that we avoid at all costs. It is truly awful. And the word is, I can't say it, uh, but I, I can hint at it. Uh, there's a song by Ray Stevens called The Mississippi Squirrel Revival. I hope you've heard of it. And part of it goes like this. The day the squirrel went berserk. In the first self-righteous church, in that sleepy little town of Pascagoula, it was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and shouting, oh, don't say it, Ken Wright. We got to pray for your forgiveness. The H word, the H word, you might not have even noticed it. But we have not said the H word in church since before Ash Wednesday. It has not been read from the lectern. It has not been hidden in one of the verses from our hymnal. And I certainly haven't said it from the pulpit. We purposely avoid the H word during Lent so that when we shout it out on Easter Sunday, it means all that much more. We specifically deprive ourselves of this important and powerful word to create a longing for the realization of all that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus promises to us and to the world. But there's another bad H word we need to talk about. Hell. I don't mean the place filled with fire and a red tone, frighteningly tall, horned figure with a trident and a bifurcated tail. No, I mean using hell as an expression. Paul writes, What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace should abound? By no means. This is what's going to get me in trouble, but I got to do it anyway. That little ending, the by no means, it just doesn't cut it. In Greek, the expression is meganoito, and it is way more emphatic than by no means. Some translations have it as God forbid or certainly not. But even both of those miss the mark. Last week, we read the words, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's as if Paul knew that people would hear those words and say, man, that's awesome. If grace abounds all the more when sin increases, then let's keep the sins rolling. And here's Paul's response. Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? Hell no! Our lives have changed forever. We cannot, we should not retreat to the ways of the past because grace abounds. God in Christ has created in us a new creation. The gift of God on the cross was and is such that we are forever free from the tyranny of sin and death. Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? Hell no! 
But that's not the only bad word we're going to talk about. We need to talk about two more. Perhaps two of the worst words we can ever bring up in church. Sin and death. And you can tell how bad they are precisely because of how often we avoid using them in a place like this. We need to talk about sin and death, not because they are normal parts of life, but because they are false powers that rule over us. And that's how Paul understands them. That's what Betty read for us. Sin reigns. Death has dominion. You need only turn on your television for five minutes in the evening to see how true this really is. The news hour is filled to the brim with the faults and the failures and the sins of other people. The Republican Party failed to procure their dream for health care reform. Left-wing activists went on strike in another major city today, causing violence and mayhem. Augusta County citizens receives life sentence for horrible crime. North Korea has another failed missile test, but they're getting closer to developing weapons of mass destruction. The market fluctuated today with every tweet from our president. Test scores have fallen in local school, leading to speculation that it will close. All of them are negative. That's right. And we go to a commercial break. We finally get a break from what we've heard on the news. And we're bombarded by products designed to make us believe that we can and that we will live forever. Use this cream and all your wrinkles will disappear. Invest in this company and you will never worry about money ever again. Go on this vacation and you will feel happy and healthy just like this couple running down the beach. We live under the tyranny of sin and of death. And Paul says this should not be so. We who have been baptized into Christ have been crucified with Christ. Our sinful selves are put to death on the cross so that we will no longer be slaves to sin and death. Long ago, we wouldn't have had to have Paul remind us about the death of sin in our baptisms. We wouldn't have needed Romans 6 to tell us this because a long time ago, baptism was all about death. That sadly where the Baptists beat us today. Because in the United Methodist Church, when we baptize, we like to take a couple sprinkles of water and dump them on somebody's head. But in the Baptist Church, you get dunked. And depending on the faithfulness of the preacher, you get held under for quite a long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
avoided the church at all costs. There was nothing you could do to invite her to come to church. But one day, she felt God pulling on her heartstrings and saying, follow me. So she went to her local preacher, the only preacher she knew, and she asked questions, she expressed her doubts, her fears, her failures, and after a while, she felt her heart strangely warm. And she said, I want to be baptized. He said, sure, that's great, come to church on Sunday, we'll get you baptized. And unlike Elijah, she walked up, down the center aisle, up to the front of the church, where there is basically a pool, this huge baptismal font. And the further she walked up the center aisle, the darker it became outside. Looking out the windows, a supercell thunderstorm was coming into the area. So Judy walked up to the pool. She started walking to the all-too-cold water. And the preacher grabbed her by the neck, and he dumped her under the water, killing her to her death and her sin. I like to imagine that while she was under the water, she opened her eyes for a brief moment. She would have seen the flash of lightning that happened when she was under the water. It was as if the ruler of the dominion of sin and death, the devil himself, was making one last final effort to keep Judy for himself. But alas, God's grace found, and she was brought forth out of the water, dead to sin, dead to death, ready to live a whole new life. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Hell no. God has changed us. And not just through the waters of our baptism, and not just through the bread that we break or the cup that we share, but through the cross of Jesus. Friends, it changes everything. It transforms our very lives to the point that we should feel compelled not to fall back on the old ways. But we know the truth. We know that we do fall back. We know that those who are sent to prison for horrible crimes have an all too high likelihood of returning one day. We know that those caught in adultery habitually cheat for the rest of their lives. We know that even the strongest member of an AA group can fall off the wagon. We all fall back. We say never again to so many things only to have them come full circle and right back again. We say never again to the anger, to the cigarette, to the bottle, to the cheating, to the lying, to the hatred, to the racism, to the homophobia, to the elitism, to the narcissism, to the defeatism, to so many things. And they just never stop. The fact that they never stop is evidence of the power that sin has over our lives, even today. But our lives have been changed. God has wiped away the old self and clothed us with the new. God has washed away our insecurities and our insufficiencies and said, my grace is enough. God was nailed to the hardwood of the cross to die a death that we might die in our baptisms. And God was raised from the dead as we were brought forth from the water to live a resurrected and a holy life here and now. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Hell no. 
I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.